0: Hey, this is Jerry Aiken, pastor at Pierce Chapel in Columbus, Georgia. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast wherever you may be. I hope that you find the word presented here engaging, informative, and challenging in your walk with Christ. Please check us out online at Piercechapel.com. The scripture this morning comes from First Corinthians chapter 13. I'll be reading verses one through eight. It's actually just the first part of verse eight, but it's those first eight verses. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, But do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Last week, we began this series on the heart principles. And again, if you have uh, ever attended a committee meeting or a business meeting or many of our Bible studies at Pierce Chapel, you know that we uh, typically open with the heart principles. And the heart principles are uh, not from the church at all. They, they actually come from the corporate world, but we have uh, integrated them at the South Georgia Conference level years ago, and they trickled down into our local churches, and, and we continue to use them to sort of shape us. But what's more important than just the heart principles themselves is understanding why as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we adhere to these principles. So we are looking at each one of these principles in light of what the scriptures show us. Before we go any further, we're going to put the heart principles on the screen. And if you would, please uh, join me in reciting them. Hear and understand me. Even if you disagree, please don't make me wrong. Acknowledge that I am a beloved child of God. Remember to look for my loving intentions and tell me the truth with compassion. As I said, these heart principles uh, came from the corporate world, actually. A book called Managing from the Heart. I shared this with you last week. This was a book written by the Atlanta Consulting Group uh, in the early 90s. It is a work of fiction. It tells the story of a man named Harry who had a heart attack, a near-death experience, and he's visited by some sort of spirit or ghost or something that that tells him that if he wants to live if he wants to be a healthy person and he wants his business to be healthy he needs to start living by these Part Principles. And some of them are slightly different, so they've been altered. But uh, when Bishop Watson uh, came to our conference, he introduced them to the South Georgia Conference, and from there they kind of made their way into our churches. the The book is available on Amazon if you want to order it. Um, it's, it's a little corny in, in parts. Uh, in fact, there's some things about it I don't even understand. For example, uh, if you get to reading the book, even if you disagree, um, is that, that happens first in the book. They start off with that. So it's not even heart in the book. It's like e-heart or something. But it is a helpful book in that it gave us the heart principles. But we're going to look at the book the scriptures, and we're going to see how these principles line up with what we claim to believe. And so that brings us to the passage that I just read from 1 Corinthians. It's a beautiful passage. I'm sure you've heard it before. You've probably heard it at a wedding. It's it's often read at weddings. Uh, Sometimes it's turned into poems or songs because it, it is a beautiful poem. It is a beautiful declaration about God's love, but love is a watered-down term in our culture, in our ears. Love brings up all these other things that we associate with love, some of them very meaningful and some of them not meaningful at all. And so love sort of becomes for us this big blanket, this big catch-all that covers Everything. And so when we talk about love and what it means to love, it simply becomes reduced, I'm afraid, to this fuzzy feeling that we have for other people. And so there's this temptation, this tendency to hear the scripture and how wonderful love is and just think that love is just this really easy thing that we can just throw over everything and say it's all okay now because love. But in actuality, love is the most powerful force in the universe. Love is from God. Love is of God. And love has the power to transform even the most hardened heart. It has the power to change even the most wayward life. It has the power to do that in every single one of us. Love challenges us and shapes us and changes us here first, and then it moves outward to challenge and shape other people. Love is not a fuzzy feeling. Love is not a catch all blanket that we throw over everything and say, it's all all right because love. Love is hard, love is challenging. And when we look at what love really means, when we dissect what this scripture really says about love, we realize how short we fall of that mark most of the time. So this scripture, when you hear it, just for today, I want you to ignore the weddings. Quit thinking about the wedding that you heard this at. Ignore the poetry and the songs. And instead, let us see this passage as a guide for living sometimes a very difficult life through very difficult times, sometimes surrounded by some very difficult people, right? But this scripture calls us to do so. It calls us to see the hardships in life, the hard circumstances in life, and even those hard relationships in life. And it acts as a guide for how to live out in a way that honors God. It's a guide that calls us to live in a way that pleases God, a way that grows us in God's love, and in a way that shares and expresses God's love to each other. You see, love is a big word. And it doesn't mean everything's okay, everything's all right. It's not a cozy, feel good catch all. Love is a challenge, and it's difficult to live perfectly into it, and that's what brings us to this heart principle, which I think is the most difficult one for us to understand. When we say, even if you disagree, please don't make me wrong, what does that mean? We have the tendency to hear that and think that means, okay, I have my opinion, you have yours. Neither one of us is right. Neither one of us is wrong. Let's just leave it at that. But that's not what that means. Because I think we would all agree there is such a thing as right and wrong, right? I mean, yes, there's all, always gray areas. There's, there's uh, room for interpretation and misunderstanding and all of this stuff. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there is something that's right and something that's wrong. There is something that is truth and there is something that is deception. And so there can't be just sort of this let's call truce and everyone's right because that doesn't make sense. So how can we say, even if you disagree, don't make me wrong? Well, we have to readjust what our understanding of that is. If you've ever seen the movie, The Princess Bride, you might remember the guy who always says, inconceivable. And then Enigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. When we think about this heart principle, even if you disagree, please don't make me wrong. I think sometimes we don't mean what we don't think it means what it really means. So let's go back to that book, that Managing the Heart book, and look at what it says in there. Harry is talking to this woman who's telling him to live by the heart principles. <laughs> and she says to him, uh, she starts giving him examples about this time that one of his coworkers or one of his employees did something and he berated her and he belittled her. He put her in her place. And she said, Harry, you made her wrong. And Harry's response was, she was wrong. There's no way around it. She was wrong. And then she said, Harry, her actions were wrong. Her thoughts were wrong. Her ideas were wrong. But you made her wrong. You belittled her. You challenged her worth. You challenged who she was by making her wrong. There's a difference. And we have the tendency to do that when we disagree. When we have infighting, whether it's in our homes, at work, school, even at church. We want to make the other person wrong. Not just that we disagree, but we want to make them wrong because it makes us even more right. Paul, who wrote this passage to Corinthians, uh, to Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he was always dealing with churches that were fighting. Imagine that, churches fighting. But here he was talking to the Corinthians and he's giving them this, this, uh, this passage about love and he was familiar with this circumstance and all these other churches he was writing to. For example, When he wrote to the Romans, he was addressing a controversy there. There was one group of believers who said, you know, uh, this this horrible thing is happening. People are sacrificing cows to these false gods and then turning around and selling that, that meat in the market at a discount. And Christians do not need to be buying that meat because it's been sacrificed to false gods. And then you have people in the church who said, those gods have no power over me. Those gods aren't real. We're talking about discounted steak, y'all. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you walk past the grocery store and you see something like this, save $10. I mean, that, that's a good Friday afternoon for me. And so Paul is dealing with this. He, he's got people in the church in Rome saying, those gods aren't real. So it doesn't matter what happened to that cow. We're getting good steak at a good price. And I have the freedom to do that because my God is more powerful than, than all these other idols. And then you had Christians saying, no, we don't need to be participating in that. Now, let me be clear. Paul agreed with one side. Paul, Paul took a stance. He, he said, okay, the, the pro-steak people are Right? He he said that. He he said, you know, if your faith is strong enough to where you're not worried about that, then then that's fine. So Paul, in a way, he said that he sided with one group. But that wasn't what was important. Paul said what's important is that you understand that both of y'all are trying to do the right thing here. Both of you are following your heart and following your conscience. And the more important thing right here is that you don't demonize each other, that you don't delegitimize each other because you want to win an argument. So Paul was familiar with these controversies. Ultimately, what he was saying is the real problem at the root of all of it is moral superiority. And I think that's the root of a lot of problems today, too. When we look at the division in our world, when we look at the division in our homes, when we look at the division in our country, when we look at the divisions that arise in the church, moral superiority is the greatest challenge because it's what keeps us from seeing sacred worth in each other. It's what keeps us from talking in a way that honors God. It's what keeps us from reaching the ultimate goal because the ultimate goal for us has been to win, to win the argument. Moral superiority allows us to look down on the people that disagree with us. Moral superiority allows us to even call people names, to think of ourselves as more righteous, more holy, more evolved, whatever you want to say than them. That's moral superiority. And that's making people wrong when you disagree with them. And it really has nothing to do with what you believe or what they believe. It has to do with with us wanting to feel better about ourselves. Wanting to exalt ourselves in some way. But love, real love, the big love, the God Love does not do that. If we get back to that passage, we can see something very clearly start to emerge, a truth emerge that we might, we might gloss over if we just treat this as a feel-good passage to be read at weddings. We understand because of 1 John 4, 7, 8 that God is love, right? And we know that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word was Jesus Christ, the Word of God personified, the love of God personified. So, if that's the case, we can replace the word love in that scripture with Jesus. Let's see it. Let's see if this rings true. Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Would y'all agree with that? Okay, now if we are disciples of Jesus Christ, that means we're following Jesus. We are trying to fashion our lives to be lived like his. We are trying to become more Christ-like as we go through this world. That's what discipleship is. So the ultimate goal is that we can take Jesus out of those blanks and put our names in there. Just in in your in your mind, let's let's try that. Let's see how let's see where you start to feel uncomfortable. Jerry is patient. Jerry is kind. Jerry does not envy. Jerry does not boast. Jerry is not proud. Jerry does not dishonor others. Is not self-seeking, is not easily angered. And I've got to stop because I'm lying to you. (laughs) Do you see what I mean about this passage? It's it's tough. It's a challenge. This isn't just a warm, cozy blanket to throw over everything. This is a challenge for us to live in a whole different way. And it's an amazing challenge that God has put before us. A challenge that really is the cure for our false sense of moral superiority. You see, when we feel like we're in the right And so we're better than those who are in the wrong. Pride has entered the chat. And pride goes before the fall. If you look back at the Romans and their controversy about the meat, one group really valued their ability to keep the rules. And one group really valued their understanding of freedom. Both of them were acting out in pride. And that was the problem. There will be times in your life where you feel like you have the answer. You know how this should go. And maybe you do. Maybe God has given you this revelation, this direction, and he is calling you to walk in it and go in it and grow in it. And that is wonderful. That is what we are all trying to pursue. But when we turn around and we use it as a way to look down on other people who aren't there, who aren't on that same journey, don't have that same understanding, have not had that same conversation with God, we have failed to recognize that our direction, our revelation, our instruction has come from God. And there may be times where you feel convinced in your heart, this is what God is calling me towards. This is what God is calling us towards. And then you have somebody belittle you or call you names or tell you, you know, you and your kind are the whole problem here. I would say that when you hear that, be mindful that that person is more concerned with being right than they are about you going in the direction God is calling you. And it's unfortunate because we see it everywhere. It can happen so close to home. It can happen with our best friends. It can happen in our families. It can happen with your preacher. It can happen with something that's being shared virally on Facebook. It can happen with a bishop. It can happen with anybody. When somebody delegitimizes an entire group of people or an entire movement Of people that feel like they are following God, what they are ultimately saying is I care more about winning this argument, I care more about getting people on my side than I care about you doing what God is calling you to do. And that's dangerous. That's a dangerous place to stand, it's a dangerous place to operate from. And all of us can fall into that trap. All of us can get to a point where we feel like we know how this should go. And so... If you don't have the same understanding, then you, you just, you're not where I am and you're wrong. And you look down on them and the love of Christ is not found anywhere in the conflict. If you don't know what to do, if you don't know what direction God is calling you, if you don't know what God has placed before you in your life, There is only one way you can get that answer. And that's by getting down on your knees and praying and praying and praying some more. And throughout the day, continue to pray and pray without ceasing and talk to God constantly. Lord, I need direction. I need instruction. Show me where to go. Show me the path forward. And only then will what is truly right start to emerge for you. But when you feel like you found the answer, you found the direction, that is not to be used as a source of pride because it didn't come from you. It was a revelation from God. It was instruction and direction from God. We all are flawed to a certain degree. We're flawed in our understanding. We're flawed in our reasoning. We're flawed in our opinions sometimes, even those that we hold most dear. But when we do have clarity, when we do have direction, we have to recognize that that clarity and that direction is a gift from God. So we should never puff ourselves up with pride and make an enemy out of those who disagree with us. We should never use that direction and that instruction as a means of, of, uh, of forming weapons against each other and belittling each other. And likewise, we should never compromise our convictions if they are truly God-given because someone else is flexing their opinion over ours. Pursue truth. Pursue correction. Pursue direction. But always recognize that we're in this pursuit together because it's one God who calls us. It's one God who guides us. And he calls us from a place of perfect love, challenging love, so that we can go together and we can grow together in that perfect love. Please pray with me. Lord, if we are honest, and and right now we want to be honest, if we are honest, there is so much confusion in this world. There There is so much gray, there's so much fog, there's so much misunderstanding, there's so much hurt, and sometimes we have trouble navigating through it all. But we thank you for your light that breaks through. We thank you for your direction when it emerges for us. We ask that in all of our confusion and in all of our uncertainty, you would help us to remember that direction comes from you, light comes from you, clarity comes from you. It's nothing we've done on our own to get it. All we can do is pursue it. So Lord, we ask that your grace would be at work within us in such a way that we would look to each other and see that we are all on that pursuit together. Some of us may be in very different places of the journey, but we are all trying to pursue the same thing, which is your will for our lives. And so Lord, keep us from that crippling, debilitating, Sin of moral superiority. Keep us from looking down on each other. Even when someone is in the wrong, Lord, help us to see that person themselves as not wrong. But instead, Lord, let us look with love and compassion on our neighbors, even those we disagree with. Understanding that there are many times we get it wrong. And yet you and your perfect love show patience and understanding to us. Lord, let us live that love out in our lives, in this church, and in this world. We pray all these things in the name of your holy son who is perfect love. Amen. Thank you again for tuning in to our podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and check us out online at piercechapel.com. And now may you know the peace, the power, and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in your life. Go to love. Go to serve. Go in peace. Amen.